Yeah, Vaughn? After me, T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> P, let me hear you say, uh. Well, we just did an Eddie Vedder live tradition. Oh, I, I wouldn't know. I've never seen them live. You wouldn't know. And it's during the breakdown of one of the songs off tonight's album. I thought we were doing Make Them Say, uh. P, let me hear you say, uh. Eh. Man, this ain't no motherfucking P. No, I didn't give it, uh. I gave it, yeah. You know, and how great is that? The intro to make him say, uh, you know, the guy's, pre- guy's pretending to be mad. Why would you call someone pretending to be master P, you know, because that's what he's doing. He's like, yeah, this is P, this is P. And the other guy's like, is this P? And he's like, no, this ain't P. Like, why? Like, why would a guy call another guy pretending to be mad? Like, what was he? What was he hoping for? You think 90s rap albums? were full of, you know, there were like five songs and then the rest of it was like skits and little, you know, interludes and bits of conversations. And like, it was just like all these in between stuff. And then like a few songs, you know, that's what I remember most about those no limit albums was it always started with an intro and then there was a skit and then there was a song and then five skits and then another song and whatever. Yeah, here we go. No limit studios. Who this is? Who this is? Look at this rapping forte. Who is this? <laughs> oh, this P. P. Yeah, this P. P. Yeah. P. Let me hear you say, uh. Uh-uh. This ain't no motherfucking P. It's funny. It's, it's funny. It's funny that he didn't. He didn't actually. He didn't fully realize it wasn't P until he he said, uh, like it's almost like he wasn't sure. But when he heard the the botched ah, uh, then he knew. Then he knew. It's like this ain't P. He was skeptical. He was yeah. skeptical. Yeah, he was kind of unsure. But once he heard that ah, uh, right, he knew this ain't no P. What was the planning session to come up with that skit? <laughs> like, what was, yeah. What was the writing process? You know. Yeah, there. I mean, there are some great. Now, I, I think of the Dove Shack, a great that Warren G outfit uh, out of Long Beach, that great '90s rap group, and like. A couple of the the sketches on their, on their album, it's just like, and you'd have to listen to them to understand. But it's like, how did they, how did how did they script this? This was like a produced piece, you know. It's great. Totally, yeah. Well, it's not a super far uh, connection to Pearl Jam's yeah. mythology in the sense. I was that- not intending for that to be a segue. <laughs> you've you've turned it into one. That's well played. That's good hosting right there. Well, we're gonna you know we're gonna discover that there's some. First of all, this is such a, this is such an interesting album to look at. It's, it's polarizing. It signaled a huge change in this band's direction. It signaled a huge change in the 1990s. In some ways, it's the reason why many never heard of Pearl Jam again. And in some ways, this record, Vitology, is the reason why we're still talking about Pearl Jam today and why they're still active. So on one hand, it eliminated their mainstream success which was further confirmed by the album that came afterwards, which we'll touch on in a little bit. And on the other hand, it 
actually extended the band's career by showing that they had range. And it's well said. And I know there's one other thing that you particularly probably love about it. What's that to you? Well, the packaging. Since you asked, well, the packaging is great. Yeah. But this record, I think, has a lot to do with the re emergence of vinyl for sort of that next generation that had gotten super cassette and CD centric. I got to think that this one had at least a pretty decently heavy hand in getting people back on the vinyl train. Don't you think? I mean, you're the, you're the vinyl expert of the show. Of course. I mean, in the nerdy deets, we'll talk about the unique process for this release, but I mean, the, the vinyl of Vitology alone, like tripled vinyl sales versus the previous year. This one record alone. And that gets into the unique aspects of the release and the packaging, of course. Love talking about packaging. But before we get into anyone's package, T, anyone's package. Before we do uh, any packaging, let's spin a little bit. And I want to find out what you, T, have been listening to as we take the show. What episode is this, T? What are we at? Uh, 60. 66. 66. Six. Yep. Route 66. Yep. Let's take Route 66 rounded round. T, tell me about the three records that you have been listening to this week. Go. All right. Well, I, I last week I talked a little bit about the Eurasure, you know, reissues, which are CD reissues and really well done. And there's another band that's done a really nice job of CD reissuing their catalog, and that's REM. And uh, uh, 25 years ago, it's make you feel so old, these like 25, 30, 35 year anniversaries. It's like, oh, my God. Uh, but, uh, new adventures in hi-fi, which is a really interesting record for these guys. It's, um, it's probably a few leftovers from the monster sessions, but also some stuff that they clearly had written while they were, you know, touring monster. Cause this came out, if you remember, this one came out, it was sort of a surprise, was sort of out of nowhere, but it continued with a lot of this guitar driven, you know, pretty stripped down approach with a little bit more instrumentation than monster had. Um, but there's some great tracks on new adventures in hi-fi. I think it's one of the, uh, better records from those guys from an era where I think that they were really, um, you know, firing on, on uh, nice, uh, cylinders, uh, band that I love, uh, that I think you would love nub. You gotta give these guys a go. That's Biffy Clyro. I've talked about them a bunch on the podcast. They have a MTV unplugged which I assume happened in Scotland. I think, you know, MTV Unplugged is still actually taking place uh, still in other countries. You know, that should be pretty interesting. And the third is uh, from a band called Candlebox, band that we like. And they, they actually released a relatively new album called Wolves. And I've yet to uh, sample it too much a couple times, uh, but I'm going to give that a little bit of a deeper dive. But I've heard it so far. And it's good. These guys still know how to play. So that's what's round and round for me. What do you got, Nubbles? Well, as I told you last week, uh, continuing to dig through some new releases. One of them is from a band that you probably wouldn't guess is a band that I like as much as you do as I do. And that is the band Thrice, who seems to put out an album every couple of years, no matter what is going on in the world. And uh, the most recent one is called Horizons East. Came in a very cool sleeve, actually, with some sort of 
visual technology or something as part of the record sleeve, but whatever, it's more important what's inside of it. And uh, another good effort from thrice, you know, kind of that hard rock. I don't know. I'd say with you, it's about 50, 50, what's actually, uh, you know, on the record, you know, versus the, the, the liner notes and the posters and the packaging, I, you know, or the sleeve, as you call it, the sleeve. I, I almost, don't you have some records where it's just as much about the uh, sleeve and packaging as it is the music itself, buddy. I buy them just to fondle them. Yes. 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 I've rented an apartment for all of them. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, thrice that that's an, one of the other new albums. See, this is one that I I'm guessing you got. Cause I think that I think you've continued on with this band and that is the new album Infernum in Terra by a pale horse named death, which of oh, course is, I actually haven't gotten that yet, but I will. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, this is the, uh, the closest carryover we have to typo negative. Well, I shouldn't say that. I guess, you know, Kenny Hickey and Johnny Kelly have done things. Yeah. That's, seventh void is their band. Correct. Well, it was seventh void. Now it is, oh, what do they call it? Ooh, what's that being called T it's called uh, seventh void. No, 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 it's not seventh void. It's, <laughs> it's, it's um, not. They uh, just, he just released a new album um, under a different name. Cause he, for whatever reason, disbanded Seventh Void, and it is called Silver Tomb. Oh, Silver Tomb! Yeah, you're yeah. right. You're right, buddy. But uh, anyway, so a pale horse named Death does have original typo me- a negative member Sal Eberscato. Ah, this is yeah. his band, and this is him sort of doing everything. Pale horse horse named Death is very cool, very typo like, kind of psychedelic, dreamy metal, and look forward to continue to dive into that new double album. And then the last, not the last of the new albums, but the last for this round and round is the new album from Tremonti called Marching in Time. This is Mark Tremonti from Creed and Alter Bridge's solo album. It's sort of his metal side coming out. And that is the new album from Tremonti. So I'll continue to dive into these and continue to explore the stack of new releases that are on my shelf. So you already mentioned some unique aspects of the release of Vitology. There's lots to get into. So let's open up the book right now. Do you know what I mean? Do you know the reference when I say open up the book T on Vitology? Very, yes. Very unique packaging. Very unique presentation of this one, which part of what made it cool. Really? I mean, as annoying and irritating as this band could be, you know, from time to time, they did some pretty cool, innovative stuff and, I think the way Vitalogy is presented is one of them. We'll, we'll talk in the wonder stories. Those who listen to the podcast regularly know that we've been building towards a Pearl Jam episode because <laughs> my brother has a, um, I don't think it's love, hate. I think it's love, hate, 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 hate. Ah, it's, it's Maybe like uh, hate, <laughs> like annoy- hate relationship. Annoyance and sort of hate. Yeah. Hate's such a strong word, isn't it, buddy? I, I, I would say, you know, medium, medium hate at most. But. Even though they're like, you know, one of the most important American bands in the last 50 years. <laughs> but certain annoyance and irritation. Yeah, yeah, you're irritated by them. So anyway, we'll look at this, including uh, something about the release date as we get into Vitology and the Nerdy Deets Thunder Jeep. You want some Dirty Deets? Yeah! You want some Dirty so Vitology was the third album by Pearl Jam. It was released on November 22nd of 1994. What's significant about November 22nd? Uh, 31 years after the Dealey Plaza assassination of JFK, sir. Correct. So, you know, you have a major turning point in our country's history on that day, 31 years before, and you have a major turning point in music history 
on the day this was released. And we'll get into some of the reasons why it goes well beyond just the songs that are on this album. Vitology followed the, you can only say unbelievably successful 10 and verses unbelievable because this band truly came out of nowhere. Eddie Vedder was like a late addition to the band and Eddie Vedder actually is not a Seattle person. So he was so closely aligned with the Seattle grunge scene, but he's actually not from Seattle, but most of the band is. And by the time Vitalogy came out, they were without question, the biggest band in the world. Nirvana had already sort of run its course and 10 and verses were so wildly successful that by the time Vitalogy came out, the band had gained so much strength and, and a lot of power. I hate to use that word, but it's true as shown by some of the events that would follow the release of Vitalogy events that again would maybe lead to Pearl Jam's longevity, but also crush a lot of the success it was having at the time from a commercial perspective. So as T mentioned near the top of the show, one of the really unique aspects of Vitology is that it was first released on vinyl. It got a vinyl only release, which in 1994 was completely unheard of because most people were consuming music on the radio, CD and cassette. And so many people bought it without having a turntable. The vinyl itself sold 34,000 copies in its first week. That's how in demand Vitology was. People just running out and getting it because it was available. And I have it, T. This is the, the original pressing of the vinyl. And you can imagine in 1994, people walking in the, this embossed cover and all this packaging, the gold you know, writing of Vitology. One thing you notice too, the band name is not written anywhere on the front or back or uh, anywhere on the sleeve other than the spine. So you know they were clearly trying to create a mood with this, Vitology with this whole concept that Eddie Vedder came up with. And by now, the band... You know, they, they were in real control of what they were able to do, not just creatively, but from a business perspective as well. So once the CD came out, then the whole thing just went gangbusters. It became the second fastest selling album in all of history, um, only behind Versus, which came out and sold 877,000 copies in its first week. So Vitology went on to become five times platinum. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hailed as the band's last major success from a commercial perspective. And that includes really the last, you know, 30 years of the band's career. The personnel, you know, it's amazing the stability that Pearl Jam has had aside from one spot in the band, and that is the drum chair. But of course you have Eddie Vedder on vocals, the guitar duo of Mike McCready and Stone Gossard, Jeff Ament on bass, he also contributed a lot of the visuals. You know, they are always quick to point out that Jeff Ament like does all, all the photography for the band and things like that. And their images are a big part of the Pearl Jam thing. So on the drums, so you know, Dave Eberzizi was not the original drummer of the band. He didn't even play on 10. He did play on verses. He did play on Vitalogy and then was almost immediately fired. And he was freaking awesome. That's and you and I love him. And I love him. He was a perfect fit for Pearl Jam. He was just perfect. And Pearl Jam was a perfect fit for him until he got fired pretty ambiguously. But it's pretty obvious that the band musically wanted a different direction. Then also, uh, you know, he, he liked to actually have fun. You know, he was kind of the rock star type, like to go out, like to mix it up. And, uh, you know, once Pearl Jam kind of became 
no fun anymore, which was probably right around this time. It seemed like they uh, decided that, you know, he was uh, too wild for the band or too rock starry or, you know, whatever. So it's, it seems like you had a guy who was uh, enjoying the rock and roll lifestyle in a band that was trying so hard to get away from that. You know, it, it seems like they wanted a, a, a different drummer direction. They may have also wanted a different sort of band culture fit uh, direction. And that had a lot to do with his ousting. It seems like that was a big part of it. It's a good point. I mean, they, the, the whole vitology thing, and we'll talk about this when we get into the songs is they're going towards this real earthy thing. They're becoming more of an earthy band. And that's really the best word I can use to describe the second phase of Pearl Jam. They went out and got Jack Irons. He did the vitology tour, or at least the very small part of it that happened. And uh, Jack Irons comes in, he plays on a couple albums, and then, of course, is replaced by Matt Cameron, who is still with the band today. Let's touch very briefly so my twin brother doesn't get too annoyed about the packaging. It is important. It's, you know, you, when you bought this album, it looked different. More importantly, it felt different. It came in a, like a cardboard book. And within that, there was a, I don't know how many pages, I'm going to guess 30 something page book with all sorts of very bizarre clips and cutouts and a few abstract photos of the band and certainly some credits and lyrics. It's just a, it's a strange, strange thing to look at. They did separate the songs into what they called division one and division two, aiming at that vinyl idea of two different sides. The thing I remember the most is it did not fit in a CD holder very well. You know, you'd have those holders that are made for jewel cases. This would never fit in there. Yeah. Maybe that was part of their point. It's a really neat presentation. I mean, uh, it was very unique at the time. Very sleek. You know, like you said, no band title, no pictures of the band. You know, it has kind of an antique sort of feel to it. Certainly has a vinyl. There's a lot of romanticizing of of the vinyl experience here through the songs and through the way it looks and feels and to some extent the way it plays um but uh yeah it was a very very cool pretty innovative uh unique and and very neat um approach to packaging and presentation on this one what followed vitology was a very public very very controversial war with ticketmaster the band decided to take on Ticketmaster's sort of price gouging, which amazingly enough hasn't changed at all. It continues today. No, it's gotten worse. Now they're doing <laughs> dynamic pricing. And it's, <laughs> I actually just bought tickets. Uh, Tears for Fears are coming to DTE in July. I just bought tickets last night and it was like, oh my God. <laughs> I mean, they're, it's like they just put a number on it. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to it or anything. Very typical. Everything Pearl Jam was fighting against in 1994 is way worse in 2021. <laughs> right. It was not well received. It was a little bit similar to the Metallica Napster thing, whereas this sort of yeah. mission or thing that they took on in the long run ended up having a huge detriment to their career. Not just because some people just thought it was whiny and and you know got in the way of of the band growing, but a lot of people were just pissed because they ended up having to cancel most of the Vitology tour. What happened was they tried to book a bunch of dates not using Ticketmaster, so at like non-Ticketmaster venues, and it didn't work out because Ticketmaster truly did have so much power and so many connections. I mean, it was a true monopoly at the time. 
And they were not able to pull this tour off without Ticketmaster. They sort of realized that. So they canceled a bunch of dates. It was a tumultuous tour. Many, many people who wanted to see Pearl Jam who maybe didn't get to before, just like you and I, either their date got canceled or they never got a date or whatever. It threw the band into even more of a spiral and probably even more of like an overthink. What came out of all that is the most controversial album of the band's catalog, which is 1996's No Code which was an album that pretty much confirmed that Pearl Jam was going to be out of the mainstream for the time being, if not for good. You know, I think you did a good job of taking everybody through kind of the tone of where this band was at because they, they got to be really arrogant. And I don't mean that in a like cocky way. I mean that in a, we're going to sort of get out of our lane and start to take on the world of, you know, politics and monopolies and fighting for the little guy and all this. But it was really masked with all these, you know, sort of niceties around, you know, fighting for the, the, the workers and fighting for the little guy who needs help and all this stuff where really they were just being kind of dicks, you know, and thinking that they could thinking that they had more power within the industry that, than they did, you know, thinking that they could sort of reinvent something that, you know, wasn't perfect, but didn't need an overhaul. And it really didn't turn out to have any form of positive impact. I mean, Metallica got dinged on the Napster thing, but quite honestly, like they had a pretty good cause to fight. They were fighting for bands that probably in some cases were we're experiencing some financial sort of hardship due to free music and music downloading and these sorts of things. So that one, I, I give them a little bit of a pass on it. I mean, Lars was being kind of annoying, but I get what they were doing. This Pearl Jam Ticketmaster thing just seemed like fighting a battle, you know, because there was a battle to fight more so than having a lot of productive, you know, sort of expectation or reasoning for it. You know, so, so I think they got what they deserved in a lot of ways because they were very stubborn in terms of continuing this battle and trying to prove they could tour on their own and all these things that, you know, logistically at the time were just very difficult, way more difficult than they understood. It's almost like they didn't understand how sort of big they wanted the benefit of having big arena shows with a lot of logistics and a lot of cost and a lot of production and these sorts of things, you know, but sort of didn't want to go through the um, process, which they had deemed to be too capitalistic and too monopolistic in these things. And, and the idea of that isn't a bad one. And I think bringing some awareness to it wasn't a bad thing, but they took it way too far, you know, and, and they ended up basically backfiring on themselves, not even from a PR standpoint, but from the standpoint of this tour to your point, being a complete disaster, you know, and not just financial, that's, you know, displeasing fans and that's, you know, getting people to roll their eyes and, and consider me, you know, someone who's been rolling my eyes at Pearl Jam, you know, for the 25 years since. Well, see, let's hear more of your eye rolling because I think that's what most of your wondrous story will be as we hear a little bit about your Pearl Jam wonder story as we get into the Wonder Stories. Return 
see, I'd like to do a top five. I'd be very interested in your top five Pearl Jam songs. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about your recollections of when you discovered one of America's most important bands in the last 50 years. <laughs> so I, listen, I, you know, I have a great, I have a, a fondness for these guys. It's a great album choice because this was the time where the band kind of started to lose a lot of its credibility. And I think that has continued to this day. I mean, they, they can still sell out an arena. They can still attract a lot of attention at their shows, but they haven't been the same since. Now, let's rewind to, was it three years before this when they released 10? Wasn't that a 1991 record? Um, the first album, or I guess in this case, two albums that I ever purchased by myself now. So we got, you know, we've talked about getting some CDs and, and cassettes and those type of things bought for us. But the first time I went to the record store and spent my own money, I was 11 years old on two CDs. One of them was Pearl Jam 10. Do you recall what the other one was? This would be good. I'm doubting it was something grunge. In fact, I'm almost guaranteeing you it wasn't. I bet it was something that was a huge mismatch against Pearl Jam. That would have been very <laughs> T. What are you trying to say? I'm a mismatcher. Is that what? <laughs> it was ACDC back in black, which I, oh. you know, had never had. And so I was really getting into ACDC, you know, and, oh, and I, okay. I really, if you remember, I, I bought their whole catalog. I was really into them uh, for obvious reasons. They're amazing. So I bought back in black because the, one of the first songs that my bass teacher, which we talked about last week, the spinal tap guy, the, our mom's sort of ambiguous boyfriend guy. One of the first songs he taught me in one of my few bass lessons was back in black. And then I was like, Oh, you shook me all night long. But so I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to buy that. So that's why I bought back in black. Why did I buy 10? 100% just to be cool. I didn't know the songs really. I didn't know if I liked them. I didn't really know much about them, but I kept hearing about Pearl Jam, this Pearl Jam, that it was a cool cover. It was a super cool fold out. If you remember, it was a huge fold out insert within the jewel case. And that's why I bought it. So this was before like Jeremy was on MTV all the time. And I think Alive was getting some radio play, but I 100% bought that just because I heard they were cool and I was trying to be cool and, you know, like the new big cool band. I, I liked it. I listened to it a lot. Uh, to this day, I think 10's great. It's very, very rich in its production. I remember uh, Versus. Did we, did we do the Midnight Sale? I think we did. I know we did it for Evil Empire by Rage. I know we did it for a couple other things. I thought we did it for Versus. I could be wrong. We definitely bought it on release day. I don't think it was at midnight, but I remember walking into... Yeah. And certainly... I mean, I might as well dive in just with an element of my winter story, but, and we've mentioned it before, but the, the local record store that we had, which was called repeat the beat, which ironically is now a Jimmy John's <laughs> right? was, it was like our second home. It was like our refuge. It was like, you walk in the doors there and everything's right. You know? And I remember one of the early purchases there was versus because I vividly remember it was on the, the kind of front, you know, area when you walk in, it was sort of staring at you when you walked in. And I was super excited to buy Versus because 
they played Animal um, on the MTV Awards before the record it came out. It was like one of those play it a few weeks before the album drops deals. And I was like, that song is a freaking jam. Like, that is awesome. So I was pumped to buy verses. Uh, I won't spoiler alert my thoughts on Vitology until we get to the end, right? And everything they've made since is junk. So this will be great to talk about. I've never seen them live. I have really no interest in it. If you could drag me, which you've, you know, sort of tried to do for (laughs) years. Drag you to a Pearl Jam show. You're like the only person in the world that would say that. I'm, I might go see him just cause you know, cross it off the list, but I'm really not that compelled to do so. And a lot of that's because I just grew to become very annoyed with this band, you know, by Eddie and all of his like mumbling and confusion and just being kind of annoying. I always felt like a lot of that was kind of phony and put on, you know, the group I think became really sort of refined and arrogant and you know, it's like they're trying to prove their longevity. So it's like, let's be Neil Young and, you know, let's be real rugged because, you know, that'll give us more longevity than being like a radio group. And hey, you know, maybe they were right because they're still around and they're still doing their thing. But there's no question that this band became very diluted right around this time. And a lot of that I think was from their own making, but Hey, they still bring in plenty of people and have plenty of fans and they can sell out an arena and God bless them. But, uh, I think that's part of what's uh, cool about this time period for the band. And certainly this release is, you know, I, I really don't think anything they put out after this was particularly good and nor is it anything that I'm have found myself to become terribly interested in. So important band uh, set the tone in a lot of ways for an important decade for us. Uh, I respect the way they played the long game in some uh, capacity. And I think that, you know, a lot of that was smart in some ways, but uh, mostly I just think they're really, really annoying. (laughs) So (laughs) what's your wonder story, buddy? Well, we have, as everyone knows that listens to Two Twins and Elm regularly, we have completely differing views on this band. This is far and away one of the most important bands in my life. Not because they're a top five band for me or anything like that, but the longevity, the sustainability. I've bought every record they've ever made on release day, aside from 10. And that's only because I couldn't get a ride to the record store on release day. And I've seen this band 11 times, which for Pearl Jam is a lot because they they tour a lot, but they don't, it's not as frequent. They're not the every, they're not on the summer circuit. I think this band is so important and will support them all the way, no matter what they do, no matter whether it's a great record, whether it's an okay record, whether it's a good show or bad show. uh, I just love everything this band stands for and the fact that they're still around. And that means a lot to me, the fact that they still do what they do. They're the only band of their peers that are still active in sort of their original format. You could say Allison Chains is, but it's different. You know, it's without their original lead singer and they took a long time off in the middle there. So in terms of Vitology, I, I vividly remember buying it. You know, vividly remember taking it home and hearing those opening notes to Last Exit. It, it's one of the musical memories that we have because it was such an important record at such an important time. But Vitology also did signal this transition. And, and we'll talk about that when we get into the songs. So yeah, it, you know, a band that I 
have a deep love for and a deep respect for and that and and you and I, you and I couldn't be more different in our perceptions of them and that's what makes it kind of fun but one day I will be dragging you to a show and you're going to leave pretty amazed i know you are they play different sets every night and uh it's it's just so so does fish yeah, <laughs> yeah right so does unfreeze yeah 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 they're sort of, you know, a lot of people do see very mistakenly. They see the Pearl Jam as the modern Grateful Dead because they're an American band who oh dear. tours a lot and plays a different set every night. But, you know, it's a pretty different vibe. You know, mm. no doubt about it. Yeah, the, yeah there's uh, a different vibe. One band has a good time and the other one is up their own butt. Now, that's not fair because you haven't been to a show. You I'm know, not talking about at their show. Truly- I'm, I'm talking about in life. Oh, yeah. 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 They, they've, they've had many moments being way up their own asses. Mm. No doubt about it. I don't mm. think they're there right now, but as we've already talked about, they definitely, and and you know what, they had consequences to those moments, consequences that they've never quite overcome from a commercial perspective. That's for sure. T, I want to hear your top five Pearl Jam songs. I I wonder if you went, if you go like pretty mainstream and hit oriented, or if it's more, you know, deeper cuts mixed in, but uh, I want to hear your top five, man. Before we get to the top five (laughs) really quick, I just want to say, you know, sometimes we give a little inside baseball on kind of each other. Because we could see each other and everyone else can't. Just want to say that uh, that my co-host Nubs right now is uh, all he's wearing is a towel. So I mean, yes, not, not, not even like shorts. Just 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 the towel, really. Do a little dip in the hot tub right before recording time. Oh, nice, nice. It's good hot tub season, isn't it? Good hot tub. Yeah. Well, certainly is. You bet. You bet. So now all that right. everyone has that terrible mental picture. <laughs> T enlighten us. What what do you got in your top five? Let's go one by one and just kind of breeze through it. So what uh in no particular order, but what would you say? What's your number five? Well, buddy, I, I already mentioned one of them, and that's Animal, which is track two on verses. And I, I think it's the the most uh hard charging. Sometimes they they sped things up, but it didn't work. There wasn't a lot of feel or groove to it. I love Animal and plus I mean Abrazizi just kills it, right? I mean, as he does many of those tracks on verses. So I'm going first with Animal. What's your first choice, buddy? My number five is gonna be the lead single off of No Code, which is the song Hail Hail, song that they still play very regularly at it's shows. A good song. It's a good yeah, song. it's a jam for sure. It's a really cool riff. Probably a stone gossard riff would be my guess on that one. And uh yeah, real rocker. And when they play it live, people love it. You know, it's one of those songs that it wasn't a huge hit, even though it was a single, but you know, kind of real, like deeper Pearl Jam fans love Hail Hail and they play it quite a bit. So number five for me is Hail Hail. T, what is your number four? Nubs, this is kind of lame, but I'm going with Better Man. Now, I know it's like overplayed and it was a big hit and all that, but listen, we play this song acoustically and it never gets old to play. I love to play it. I love to sing it. It's a very simple song. Um, using major chords and, you know, obviously great melodies and great feel and a really, really good vocal from Vetter. So I know it's a little, you know, mainstream, you know, not the, not the coolest, not the elitist choice in the world, but Better Man's a top five track for me from Pearl Jam. So what do you, what do you got? There's nothing wrong with picking Better Man, man. That's oh, okay. Thanks. That's okay. Thanks for the support, buddy. See, my number four is it's going to counter your theory that they've never done anything good since Vitology. I didn't say that. I said they've <laughs> never made a good album. Okay. All right. Then I, I fair, fair. And, um, and that is my number four, which is Sirens, which is off the album Lightning Bolt from 2014. Oh, my. This is a 
Mike McCready penned, some might call it a ballad, but it's an amazing song. And Eddie delivers, in my opinion, one of the best vocals he's ever done with the band. It's one of those should have been hits. And it's a very heartfelt, really, really good song. One that even Be Fair, who's you know, a listener of the show, and he and I go back and forth all the time about Pearl Jam because he used to like him and now he hates him. But even he was like, dude, Sirens <laughs> he, is a really good song. He, he, he wised up. He wised yeah, up. Stop be, it. Be Fair. Stop it. Yeah. He used to be a huge fan. And yeah, he's, he's you know, he, he woke up, didn't he? He, he, he well, you could you would say that, but the thing I take away is that he, even he thought Sirens was pretty amazing. So number four off Lightning Bolt is Sirens. T, what's your three? Nubs, I'm going with uh, Yellow Bedwetter. Uh, great song from these guys, Yellow Yellow Bedwetter. I got, I love it, man. I've I've loved that song ever since it came out. Um, those was it during the verses sessions or the Vitology sessions? I think it may have been verses, right? I think it was verses. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a really actually a pretty amazing song with a really good vocal. I don't know what the hell he's saying. I I remember I the first time I actually read the lyrics was like, really? Like wow, you know. That kind of led to the marbles in the mouth. Stigma about yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, and rightly so, but I think it's a song with a lot of feel, great pace, yellow bedwetter. So oh, lead better. It's sorry, it's lead better. (laughs) Yeah. Lead better. Yeah. No, good song. What's uh what's your third choice now? My number three is Jeremy. Just something about the you know, 12 string bass part by Jeff Ament. When they play this live, it's a real moment. I mean, a Pearl Jam show is like it's like a religious experience for those who love the band and jeremy is one of those moments where you're just you know you're you're really in it the whole time and then at the end they always do this trademark thing where it hits that last note and one single spotlight shines on jeff and he plays that rather you know incredible outro yeah on the 12 string bass and jeremy's a song that i didn't love so much when it was out because it was so you know overplayed and and just the video was on constantly and yeah with time i've come to appreciate it as a piece of music way more than i did you know even as a teenager so i agree that's a good take cool yeah so number three for me jeremy let's do the final two t what is your numeral dose well i'm on the same record and the (laughs) track one on 10 once uh love this one just love this one and i've grown to appreciate it more and more as the years have gone on it's very atmospheric love the rhythms of it i love that that electronic beat intro that sort of iconic intro to 10 and how it feeds into the sort of main guitar progression that's really really cool i think it's a very thoughtful song with a lot of instrumentation coming together perfectly a lot of different parts coming together perfectly and obviously it's really well produced so Once track one on 10 is in my top five. My number two is off of verses. And that is the song dissident, which to me has really, Oh yeah. I hate that song. (laughs) Do you really dissident? Yeah. Yeah. You don't like the middle. I think the middle is. Yeah. Uh, No. Oh God. The verses are so open and like, He's singing with such passion during the verses. And then that, that middle section, middle section's cool. Oh, it's a jam. Middle section's cool, but the rest of it sucks. 
Really? Wow. Yeah, no, <laughs> dissident for me. Number Do you two also out. like glorified G? No, I can't stand yeah, it. Yeah, I hate that one too. <laughs> yeah, ridiculous song. I, I kind of do like the, the, got a gun, fact I've got two, you know, I, I, <laughs> like some kind of like Mick Jagger about that, that I like, but outside of that, whatever, you know, but yeah, number two dissonance. So there you go. You hate it. I love it. So, all right, T, what tops your list? What's your number one Pearl Jam song? It is Porch. Um, great performance of this on MTV Unplugged. Except for when he like wrote all over himself, like political statements or whatever. It was like, come on, Eddie, just, can you just, can you just enjoy yourself? Um, I believe they did this on Saturday Night Live too. Um, they in did. Aber- in yeah. Their, yeah. It was part of their first Saturday Night Live performance. And Aberzizi just destroys it. I mean, it's, yeah, just, amazing. it's amazing, such yeah. a good drum part for him, especially that middle section where he's kind of working both hands and the open and closed hi-hat and keeping that rhythm going while they're sort of in this spacey kind of jam. It's a, it's a really, really good song, you know, start to finish. And, and really, at least at that time, I haven't seen a more recent performance of it. They probably play it like all slow and jammy now or whatever. But at that time, you know, the live performance of porch, which they pulled off really, really well, both in full band setting, as well as this unplugged setting were excellent. So that rounds out my top five. What rounds out yours? My number one is off 10 and that is garden. And this has always been my favorite Pearl Jam song. Hmm. When I flew out to New York city to see them do back-to-back nights at Madison square garden, one of my Pearl Jam buddies said, dude, you're going to get garden at the garden. I just know it. And like garden at the garden is like a big deal. And yes, of course, got it. And it was, you know, one of those memorable moments that we all experience when we, especially when we travel to go see a band. So yeah, garden, I just it's sung with just so much passion and it's got a real mood to it. It was one of those, you know, 10 was so full of dual guitar attacks and upbeat rockers and even flow and things like that. But Garden was one of those moments where I thought this band is definitely different. And the chorus of it is so anthemic, yet kind of draggy. And I just, I love everything about it. So my number one is Garden. All right, T, let's look at some more tracks. Let's put the needle on the vinyl, literally, and get into 1994's Vitology and the track by track. And see, before we drop the needle, the Pearl Jam tradition. Now, Eddie, when he comes out on stage, he always brings out a bottle of wine. And that bottle of wine is gone by like the fifth song. He's notorious for getting super drunk off of red wine during his shows. So got my glass of red wine here and take a sip. I'd probably need a bottle of wine to get through one of those shows too. Stop it. Stop it. And like most Pearl Jam albums, it starts with a little bit of an intro and typically a lot of drums. And there is no exception to the opener on Vitology, which is, of course, last exit. Again, that word earthy, you know, there's something just more organic about Vitology. It gets into the, the way the songs were put together. These songs were put together through jam sessions on the road. It was recorded in spots during the Versus tour. 
And you can kind of hear that here. And it's very, very simple riff. Do, 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 do. You know, just kind of rock and roll. But obviously with, you know, the better vocal and the Ebers Easy drums, still very much Pearl Jam, but right off the bat, you kind of felt differently about this versus the previous two albums, didn't you? Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, I think it's a it, it, it's not only a great way to kick off the record, but it was different. It was raw. You know, it was kind of like, you know, you, you got away from a lot of the lushy sort of production that you got in the first two records, but in a good way. I actually think that stripping this down a little bit, you know, getting kind of some just dirt with the guitar tones, Eddie experimenting a little bit more vocally, um, things not needing to be perfect. I love when they were overproduced. I, I did. I, I, th- I think 10 is amazing. And it's like one of the most produced records of all time versus got a dialed it back a little bit. But this one is really stripped down and raw. And I think Last Exit is a cool way. I like that it's upbeat too. You know, they could, it would have been very Pearl Jam to kind of come out and say, you know, let's, let's, let's have track one be something uh, unexpected and whatever, whatever. I think it's a great opener. It's a good show opener too. I saw him open with this once. And uh, if you ever went to a show, you'd be overjoyed if they opened with Last Exit. I would actually quite like that opener. Yes, sir. <laughs> It does have the ingredient that's my biggest critique of Viceology, which is so different from the previous two albums. And that is, it's an album full of terrible middle sections. And it starts with that. I mean, it's a couple good ones, but yeah, there are a couple really good ones and we'll point them out. But like, for the most part, it's an album with dreadful bridges. And I think that gets into that. The album was pretty spontaneous. I think Stone was the guy who said that. 80% 80% of the album was written 20 minutes before it was recorded. Like it was that kind of <laughs> deal. And you can sort of tell there's not a lot of thought gone into the middle sections in last exit is a really good song with a terrible middle section, but it, it's overall, it's an opening jam. It, it gets the album off to a good start. That gets into the second single, a tribute to the vinyl record with spin the black, spin the black circle. Pearl Jam definitely, you know, wanted to show their more punk side, I think, through this organic thing. And Spin the Black Circle is very much a punk song, both in tempo and in kind of, it, it's so simple. I mean, it's so yeah. simple. Very unique Pearl Jam song. But I remember, you know, at the time, and even now, it's cool. It's like, it was different, you know, and the whole concept, and I know they released this on 45, as you mentioned. It was neat. It was kind of a, you could tell it was sort of a meaningful, romantic, you know, sort of expression of vinyl and of the the music experience and the listening experience and all these things, which, you know, again, we've seen, um, remember in 1994, vinyl hadn't like come back the way it is now. You know, this was very early in this sort of resurgence. It was still the CD era and uh, in the cassette era. And it was cool that these guys not only package things in a certain way, obviously they play in the logistics of the release uh, around the vinyl release, which came two weeks before the other formats. And to have a song like this, that sort of sort of pays themselves some appreciation for that, but certainly pays, I think music as a whole, some appreciation for the method in which they, love to have it absorbed i actually think is pretty neat 
Yeah, I agree with all that. It, it's, and I'm glad you mentioned that from the top. I mean, this, this album was vital in terms of its role in putting vinyl back on the map and back on the, back on the platter, if one will. Another, you know, song with a terrible middle section. You know, it, it's, it's aimless. Yeah. Well, it just kind of doesn't do anything, right? Well, yeah. So think of a 14-year-old listener who loves this band. You have this sort of jaggedly moody opener. You've got this punk, overly simplified first single as a second track. And then the third track comes along, and it's this repetitive, we're going to insist on basically using the same riff throughout the whole song thing. And that is Not For You. Maestro, thanks for choosing that clip because you continue to support my theory. You've chosen the third of three horrendous middle sections. What? <laughs> oh no! Oh, that 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 is it's awful. Are you crazy? That's like the one of the best parts of the entire album. I don't even like "Not for You" that much, but that's that middle is awesome. It's Are you so kidding? stupid. It, the, oh, you, I I you love it. Oh yeah, man. I think it's, it's not only by far the best part of that song. I think it's one of the coolest moments of the record and oh, not, wow. not for you is a very simple, that, it's kind of cool how there's a lot of simplicity on this record. There's a lot of usage of major chords, uh, expected open chords, these type of things. Not for you is a very basic, you know, E chord shape where you're sort of moving up and down the neck. Huh, I, th- I thought you were about to say, you know, we get to the first non-shitty uh, middle section of the album. No, I, I would say the shittiest of the three. It's just blah. You know, it's like a bunch of, it's like guitar vomit into that middle section. Can you dust for vomit though? You can't really <laughs> yeah, you can't really dust. Sorry, for that me. was a callback to episode 65, Spinal Tap. Anyway, I love it. Love it. The only band that's had more drummers than Spinal Tap is Pearl Jam. But uh <laughs> It's it's very Eddie. This is kind of where he was as a guitar player and songwriter. Vitology has, I think, four or five songs that are written exclusively by Eddie Vedder, music you, and lyrics. Are you calling Eddie Vedder a guitar player? I'm so calling just, him. Yeah, I'm saying, pointing out that he was pretty crappy at this time. He's gotten better <laughs> over time, thankfully. Has he really, though? I mean, I, I saw him with a guitar in his hand a couple of years ago, and it still looked like the first time he had ever played it. <laughs> yeah, I love, so, I love that call. Yeah. Some guys, like, they just... They want to so bad, you know, they want to play guitar and it's like, you're just not, it's like, it's like an, a non-athlete trying to go out there and, um, take one down the yeah. lane and finger roll it. It's just, it's not, you just, no. Like, Did you ever see Billy Joel live? Uh, yeah. He plays guitar and I go to extremes and it is the weirdest sight ever. I mean, he just, <laughs> yeah. And he's been doing it for, you know. 30 years, but well, it doesn't look about right. Eddie, yeah. Eddie Vedder, I think on this tour decided he wanted to play guitar, you know, cause like, you know, he doesn't yes. want to be a singer. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so that was 25 years ago and I, he still looks the same to me, you know? Yeah. It, it, Vitology is very much the, the transition of Eddie Vedder taking the reins of this band. There's no doubt about it. I don't think we'll differ on track four. This was the moment where I thought, okay, Pearl Jam has lost its mind. And that is Tremor Christ. Good, 
mean, I remember even at the time hearing this and thinking this song would never have been on verses or 10 ever. Think about what a mismatch this song would have been on there. I've never liked it. I, I think it it's sort of directionless. I like it more now than I did then. I don't, you know, then I agree with you. It was kind of a similar reaction. It was like, like, whoa, <laughs> you know, this isn't, this isn't catchy. I have a little bit of an appreciation for it now because it's different. The, the sort of uh, dissonance in some of the guitar work, I think, is kind of cool. There, there are moments on this that I certainly at the time didn't understand or appreciate that I do now. In that, you know, the, the thing I think that's kind of cool is you could tell they were trying to push the boundary. They were trying to be different. They were trying to show that they're not just going to get up there and play, you know, catchy tunes, even though there are plenty of those on this. And I think those moments are kind of cool now um, in, in terms of kind of the vibe of this entire, this is a record, right? And this is not like collection of singles, like versus sort of was in 10 definitely was tremor crisis kind of a moment now where it's like, yeah, I get what, why they would put that on there and what they were doing and how they were trying to sort of make this a collective in a lot of ways. And so, you know, don't love it. It's not like the type of song you're going to put on in your car while you're like flying down the highway or anything, but kind of get it a little bit more now than I, than I did before. File track five under the Pearl Jam fans love it. And I don't. And that is nothing, man. But in the past, he's slow. It's a well-written song by Jeff Ament. He did nothing wrong. I just, I just am bored by it. That's all. And they play this song at their shows to you, usually in the context of what they call the man trio. They'll do nothing man, leather man, better man in a row. I've seen it twice. The fans at the shows lose their minds when they do the man trio. And I'm like going to get a beer. It's a super beer song for me. I just, I don't know. It's not, it's not my Pearl Jam thing. What is it? Nothing man, better man. And what did you say the other one was? Leather man, which was a pretty popular B side uh, from, I want to say it was from the uh, no code sessions or maybe the yield sessions. It was kind of that era. Yeah. I'm guessing you like nothing, man. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it, man. I think it's beautiful. This episode is just everything. Everything I say, I'm going to guess the opposite. (laughs) I I think it's gorgeous. I really do. I think it's cool that they keep it under control. I like, you know, that they don't feel like it has to open up or any of those things. Middle section on this, I think is great. Uh, Yeah, man. I think Jeff, I dropped a gem here. I think it's a really, really pretty song. Amazing the quantum leap they they take from Nothing Man to track six, which ends what they call division one or side one of the album. And that is the rather frantic whipping. is a cool one if you get it live it's one of those kind of things they play a couple times a tour and you feel lucky if you got it good live song definitely sounds more like 10 and verses 
my, my biggest critique of the song, again, crappy middle section, like everything, <laughs> but um, I wish they didn't title it whipping. I think it would have been way cooler if they would have given it another title because they say it so much during the song. It just seems so obvious. It's just one of those moments where I thought, man, they, they could have called it something else. And maybe that would have oh, made yeah. them seeing whipping over and over again, just a little more effective because you're yeah. like, oh, why are they saying that? You know what I mean? I think that's a good call, but yeah, I think it's a jam. I, I think live, this one probably is cool. A little fist pumper, a little something that can get you going, but yeah, coming off nothing, man. And going into this, it really is sort of a hard charging piece. I, I, I think really works. I think it's a really good rap to a really good side one, or what did they call it? You said train division one division, division one. Yeah. Two, yeah. yeah. It's kind of stupid, but to a really, really good side, a side <laughs> one uh, to, to this record, I think it closes it out really nicely here. Well, you flip the side and we're, we're just going to skip over the first track on division one. It's pride two. it's, it's one of the few sort of little musical motifs that the band put together which again, it, the reason, one reason to talk about it is because it, it does signal this huge change in creative direction for the band that they would even include something like that. Again, nothing like this would ever appear on 10 or verses, but appear on Vitology to signal that, that transition. But then they would go into a, a song that is the most frequently played song by Pearl Jam at shows. It's in the 11 shows I've been to, they're, they're 11 for 11 on this track. And I, I want to say they've played it at 99% of the shows that they've done since it came out. Which I think it's kind of stupid. I mean, if they're going to play like different sets every night, why? Cause don't, don't they do, don't they, don't they do that with a live too? They don't play a live at every show. They, they no, play they, it at a lot of shows. They play they? it a lot. They play it a lot, but not at every show. I don't know. It's kind of like either do the like mixed set list thing or don't, but, it seems like they've always had like two songs that show up a lot for it to be a full on new mixed set list. I, I, no, so T I don't, I'd be, I'd be shocked if you said that after seeing this song live, it, it is the high point of any program <laughs> show. The middle, the crowd engagement is huge. There's this clapping thing. And that's when Eddie does that call and response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's back and forth. And it's, it's really, really, it's this big stadium moment. And, and you can see why they play it every night. It's, it's far and away their most engaging song. And it's, it's always good every time they play it. And that is Corduroy. notes. One is that this is one of the songs that I very much prefer Matt Cameron playing versus any other drummer who's played it. Matt Cameron destroys this song. I mean, he totally gets it. And he does a kick drum thing during the, the beginning that really gets kind of the crowd involved and he smashes the ride symbol on those open parts. So I love the way what Matt Cameron has done to this song. And I can't say that about a lot of Pearl Jam songs, even though I do love Matt Cameron. The second thing is, not only is this a fantastic bridge, it's probably my favorite Pearl Jam middle section in their entire catalog. When, when they open it up and go into those major chords and Eddie sings, you know, everything has changed. Absolutely no, nothing's changed. Take my hand. I'm all in at that moment. And, that, and most people are. I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous piece of music. 
And again, I think it explains why they play it live so much. So scratch everything I've said, critical of the middle sections on this album so far, Corduroy is as good as it gets in that way. Yeah, it's a great tune. I mean, it's a great one of probably the better mid 90s songs. Uh, I think it's had a lot of longevity, which, you know, understandably, um, one of the great peaks, I think, on this record. And, and, you know, I think a song from the mid 90s that will live on for a very, very long time. I don't like just love it, gush about it, but I think it's very good. Very, very solid. So this magnificent stadium-esque song gets you into far and away the most what the hell moment on the album, certainly in 1994. And that is the rather atrocious Bugs. A few blocked the door And now the questions Do I kill them? I mean, T, you know me, man. I'm I'm into the avant-garde. I don't need to defend my taste in a variety of unique and weird ways. But T, what the fuck? It's just so weird. (laughs) Like, like it's so weird that I like now I kind of love it. I mean, <laughs> at the time, I know what you're course. saying. I do. Well, yeah. at the time, of course, we're all like, like, have you heard bugs? Like, like, what is going on here? It's so, it's such a weird, bizarre song. I don't know, is, is it a song? I don't even know what it is. But, you know, like the, the accordion, the lyrics, like Eddie Vedder on accordion, by the way. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, he, he, you know, he knows one lick because that's all it is over and over again. But and uh, drummer Eddie Vedder. Do, do, you, know, do you know that line? <laughs> yeah. The singles. Yeah. yeah. And Which, uh, see, that's the. So when I talk a lot about this, uh, this band being up its own ass and how that's annoying and stuff. There was a time where these guys had fun, didn't take themselves too seriously in the movie singles. They're hilarious. You know, they're, they're uh, in the band Citizen Dick with. Um, uh, uh, Matt, uh, what's his name? Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon, yeah, who's local. amazing in Something yeah. About Mary as uh, Pat Healy. Just yeah, of course. Yeah. So good. But, um, I, you know, I liked that era where they were kind of having fun and not taking themselves seriously in that. And boy, did that change. But, you know, Bugs is, uh, again, there are moments on this that are very uh, sort of anti-rock. And you get it sprinkled in on a few moments here and it's kind of stupid and kind of pointless, but it's like so weird and out there that it's kind of cool. And now I appreciate it a little bit in, in terms of they were really sending a message. Oh yeah. Oh, they, and, they were. But again, I, I think there was a lot of dissension in the band during this. I mean, you, you, you read accounts of Vitology and the band was not getting along. They were not on the same page. This whole Dave Eberzizi thing. And drugs were playing a part and drugs were playing where they guys going to leave the band. And yeah, Yeah, they had guys, you know, one of the guys in rehab. I mean, it was not a pretty picture. And when you put all those things into context and you kind of get a sense for like what they were trying to do artistically with this, Moments like this are like actually like kind of cool, I must say. Um, so it's a strange song, but I don't know. Nowadays, I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing I do really appreciate about it, and again, all these signals of transition is, I mean, 
This is a major label album in 1994 at the absolute pinnacle of this band's commercial success. And it, it has this on it. And you, you got to respect that. You do. I don't like it, but you got to respect it for sure. Yeah. There's kind of, there's a lot of signal, not noise on Vitology, right? It's, it's kind of yeah. like if, if you're looking for the signal, you know, you always look for the signal, not the noise. Right. And there are a lot of signals here that are important. And that's the type of thing that bugs is sort of getting across. And of course there's noise that if you sort of plow through it and appreciate the signal, you know, there's some cool stuff happening. See if you think cool stuff's happening with track 10. I'm going to ask for your take on this one before I give mine. And that is the Stone Gossard penned Satan's Bed. See, what do you think of Satan's Bed? Uh, I, I really like it. You know, <laughs> I think that it's kind of a cool, quirky riff. I like this sort of, you know, um, crowd chorus, you know, where they're all just, I don't know if it's all five of them or whatnot, but they're all kind of just yelling it out, you know, in love. I always thought they were saying England, like Vindaloo, but which I thought was cool, but they're saying in love. They should have said it just yelled England for no reason, but um, let's just pretend like they're doing it. Yeah. Like it better. Yeah. I think things like this on Vitology actually hold up really well. You know, when I, when I listen to this record now, this is a moment where it's like, again, at the time you're like, what are they doing? This is quirky. This is different, but I actually find this to be kind of a jam. And, and I bet when they play it live, it's something you could go a little bit bonkers to in a good way. So, that's my take, but what's yours, man? I agree 100%. Unfortunately, they don't play this one a lot, but yeah. I've always felt like this is where the the sort of strangeness of Vitology really works, but it's the riff. I mean, it's a great riff. is a loose, sleazy, Rolling Stones sort of riff that really works, but it's up-tempo. It's not, it's the one song, with not, it's not Dave Abruzzese on the drums. It's actually his tech. Dave Eberzizi was getting his tonsils out when they recorded this. And they brought in Jimmy Schoaf, who's his uh, drum tech. Was it an FU to Eberzizi? Oh, yeah, I think so. I I, I mean, I think so a little bit. But what's interesting is whoever this drum tech was, plays a lot like Jack Irons. And you can hear it. I mean, if you would have told me that Jack Irons and the drums playing this, I would have thought for sure. So, yeah, I mean, it sort of, you know, shows kind of what they were looking for and the changes they were looking for. But but it's a very steady, you know, very driving beat. I think if Abrazizi was playing on it, as much as I love him, it would have turned into a totally different song. So, and it leads into a far and away the most famous song to come from the album, but a very unconventional hit single. We'll get into why. And that is track 11, Better Man. One of the most unconventional hits I've ever heard. I mean, I don't know the timestamp, but the drums do not kick in for at least a couple minutes. It starts with this really long intro. It's it's funny. 
Sorry, sorry, I love that part. Had to get that one in. It's funny to hear it at, at true tempo because when they play it live, they play it so fast. Way too fast. Stupid fast. Yeah. And uh, so it's kind of cool to hear it in its original format. It, it, it's, it's super unconventional. It does not have a middle section, which is why I can't criticize the middle section. What you just played is more of an outro. It, it really doesn't have a bridge. It comes in and, and hits a couple big choruses and then kind of goes into an outro and then is out. Live, they do this whole thing. It's like what Genesis does with Turn It On Again, where they start to tie in all this other stuff and Eddie starts riffing on sooner or later. And it, it's, you know, it, it's kind of a thing, but they, they draw it out. It's, it becomes this big sort of let's explore all the different melodies that can go on top of Better Man. And to me, this is probably a little bit like a live for me where it was really overdone and that probably had an impact on my view of the song. I wouldn't go as far as to call it a beer song, but for me, it's a beer song because I've seen him play it so many times and, and I kind of get it. I think you need it on Vitology. I mean, especially, you know, this, this second half, Division 2 or whatever. Did I get that right? Yeah, You got it right. It is a little out there, you know? <laughs> So I think you need something that just sort of, I, I feel like Better Man really keeps the album fairly grounded in the second half, which I think is important. I think without Better Man, it could get a little sort of, you know, out there for the sake of being out there. A lot of his uh, vocal work sort of in that outro is neat. I don't know if I'd want to sit there for five extra minutes at a show and hear him riff on it. I think what he does is just fine. Um but yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it was in my top five. It's, uh, you know, it's one of those Pearl James songs that, yes, it got a lot of play. And yes, a lot of people are probably sick of it. But, you know, I think it's important to Vitalogy and certainly a pretty important song from this time period. And I have to say, I really like playing it with you. I like when we do it acoustic. It's Yeah, it is always fun, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and I like how fond of it you are. And I think that's important because it shows that you uh, deep down really love Pearl Jam. Okay, let's move on. And... Um, <laughs> Trek 12, let's just play a few seconds of it. It's actually really cool. I, I like I Daviente uh, because I think it it's one of the cool little motifs that they have. It does not need to be two minutes and 57 seconds long, but T, why don't you just spin a little bit of it just so we can hear the basic groove. Kind of tribal, kind of interesting. I think it's a nice in-between. And we've had this before. If only the album ended with the next track, I think we would have had much more of a, a sort of masterpiece than we end up with. They make the mistake of tacking on something after this. But track 13 actually was just outside of my top five. Talk about a song that brings the house down when they play it live. And again, Eddie Vedder solo pens, one of the best songs of the album and one of the three singles. And that is Immortality. a superb piece of songwriting and why do I love it so much T I they get the middle section right it's like one of two songs on the album the middle section which is instrumental just shows the guitarist really exploring some of the chord progressions that relate to the key and it's a really really strong middle and it builds the song and then that last verse and chorus just kind of a larger payoff 
I haven't always liked immortality. I, I used to find it boring, but in the last maybe you know 15 years of being a Pearl Jam lover, it's a song that I've really grown to love. And I cannot wait to hear what you think of it. T, what's, what are your thoughts? I think it's okay. I, I think it, I mean, obviously I think it would have been, should have been a great closer, you know, and, and I think it kind of is. I mean, it's not like, I don't think the last track is much of a song. Um, so I do think of this as the closer. I think it's a good closer. I don't love it. I mean, it's not like, you know, one of those that um, would even maybe make the top five for me on the record. But I, I think it's good. And I think that if you think of this as the closer, which is probably fairly appropriate, certainly Healthy, preferred. healthier to think of this as yeah, certainly preferred, uh, other than the uh, sort of revolution number nine that you seem to get here in the final, final track. Um, I, I think it's good. I think it buttons it up in, in a appropriate tone and in an appropriate fashion. Just so we keep the ethics of two twins in an album going, let's go ahead and just spin a short bit of what really is called stupid mop, but it, on the album, it's Hey Foxy, blah, blah, blah. That's me. But let's hear a little bit of how the album closes. Right. So that's technically how the album closes, but in our minds, let's just say <laughs> whatever that is. <laughs> well, it's seven minutes and 28 seconds of it too. It's like, wow. Yeah. But um, yeah, this is where, this is where they said we've got space and we're trying to make a statement. Let's just like fill it with junk. I, it's sort of, it is sort of revolution nine esque. It's like, you know, let's just fill the space with something that, you know, is uh more of an expression than it is anything terribly musical so yeah it's whatever. actually a great comparison and the only reason they had spaced he is because the songs on vitality are so short most of the songs are, are three minutes or less yeah right well the only difference really is that you like revolution nine as we learned back in our <laughs> white album episode how dare you number nine every day <laughs> <laughs> I might have said that just to piss you off. I can't. So remember. silly. No, you you sort of yeah, actually it was it was a decent, you, you kind of I got noted, a good take on it. You noted the avant-garde appreciation. And, right. I don't know. Whatever. It was kind of a hipster take. I will I'll get that. <laughs> That's I'm a non-hipster. I I agree. See, that brings Vitology to a close. We closed this book literally on this album. And uh, you know, we've explored so much of the context. I mean, we give a, a pretty thorough history of the before, during, and after. So with all that considered, T, did Vitology matter? Um, yeah, I, I think it was their last good album. That sort of matters. I, I think the presentation of it was very unique and interesting and important in a way. The vinyl distribution of it was super important. Um, and, and I think it really deserves a lot of credit for the sort of uh, reemergence uh, vinyl as a medium. And, you know, it's a band that is downshifting to, I think, sort of a longer game and kind of saying, we're not going to put out another 10. We're not going to put out another versus, but it has moments that aren't afraid to be commercial, that aren't afraid to be enjoyable, but moments that clearly send a strong signal. Uh, and again, signal, not noise on records like this. 
you're sending the signal that, you know, we're not going to just give you stuff to clap along with all the time. And that we're really sort of constructing a record that we know is going to land differently than the previous two, but it's still them being authentic, which I think is good. So there's a, there are a lot of important, I think, themes to this, whether you like the record or not. I, I do think that there were some important signals and some important themes coming from these guys at a time you know, 1994, there were still a lot of bands, grunge bands, rock bands, just trying to fit the formula and and get the template right and sort of make it. Uh, or, you know, trying to preserve what they may have started a couple years before with something that was a little bit more safe and a little bit more sort of in line with what they thought could give them, whether it's short or medium term longevity this was really saying we want long-term longevity. And part of that's pretty neat. And part of that was certainly very interesting. So yeah, I, I do think there were quite a few elements of this record well beyond just the songs that, that mattered back in 1994 and still matter in a lot of ways today. What do you think, buddy? I, what I think is you just captured it perfectly. I don't need to say anything more. I, I agree with you hundred percent. And well, wait, shucks. The first time all episode. So we can agree on that. <laughs> yeah, right. You it know? took us, what, an hour plus, but but we finally agreed. Yep. So I, I have nothing more <laughs> to add to it. Well, well, very, very well said. Let's do the final cut. See, is Vitology on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it headed to the dreaded for sale bin? See, where you have Vitology. Buddy. I'm spinning the black circle. It's on the turntable. And, you know, because, uh, and again, it's not because it's a band I love so much, but it's a record that took a lot of chances that repositioned the band that played the long game, which I like. It's signal, not noise. There's a lot of noise on the record. You're not going to love every single piece. But even today, you know, even this, this process of kind of listening to it start to finish, which I hadn't probably done in many years, you get an appreciation for what they were trying to do as a collective. And I think that's part of what's cool about musically making it a collective and then packaging it and releasing it as a collective. It's a true LP. It's a long play. And I like that they went in that direction. I like that they did it in a way that's pretty authentic. I wish they didn't have kind of the whole Ticketmaster and the screwed up tour and, you know, the, the, the firing of Abruzzi, the, the stuff that kind of made the wheels fall off a bit. I wish that wouldn't happen because I, I think they would have continued down a, a fairly strong creative road on the heels of this. And I don't think they did, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because I, I really think that every record they put out after this was bad. But this was the last of, of a great and important, in many ways, three-album run. And even though they weren't able to sustain it, I think you still look at this sort of trifecta as something that uh, mattered quite a bit within the industry, shaped this sort of trend in a lot of ways of what post-grunge might look like. And uh, for that, for me, it's, it's, it, this is a record to me that's always been an experience rather than just a collection of songs. and. And for that, man, it's it's not only in the collection, in my vinyl collection, but I'm putting it on the turntable for the final cut, buddy. So, hey, you know, you thought I hate 
I hate on Pearl Jam all the time. How about that? Huh? You like that? Tell you what, man, the the fascination of this episode continues. I've got Vitology <laughs> collecting dust. Ooh, okay. How about it that the Pearl Jam fan, the lifelong fan, puts the album collecting dust and the self-proclaimed perpetually annoyed by Pearl Jam guy <laughs> has it on the turntable. So welcome to Two Twins and Album. That's why this is the best podcast in the solar system, right? Because oh, yeah. we yeah. can get to that place. But yeah, I, I got a collecting dust. I think that about a third of it is some of the most important work the band ever did. And I think the remainder of it is is a lot of throwaway stuff that didn't last, maybe has some importance to the longevity. I agree with everything you said about playing the long game. I like the signal versus the noise, of course. But in terms of you know the, 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 the actual content of the album, it's not a top to bottom experience for me. I love the packaging. I love what it stood for. I don't love the music top to bottom. And I hate the crappy middle sections. I can't stand them. But T, I love that you put it on the turntable. And I want to wrap up episode 66 by doing a little what's in your head. Let's find out three songs that have been ringing in your head, T. Go ahead. In your head, in your head. T, what is in your head? All right, buddy. Well, listen, I'm going to start with uh, one of my favorite songs of all time, which is by the great Jeanette Napolitano and Concrete Blonde, a group that I love, and a song that I absolutely love called Heal It Up, one that everybody should know and love. love that song. Just love that song. I mean, oh, isn't it, isn't it amazing? Oh, just love it. Yeah. It's, it's so, talk about a middle section that'll just, you know, blow like blow your mind i i went and saw them live when i was living in new york city and man it was like they played that and i was just like a happy guy for like a month you know it's just totally totally cool uh let's stick with another you know a power female another powerhouse cindy lopper a change of heart one of the better one of the better tracks of the 80s well written well sung i saw her speaking in new york i saw her at a broadway show once she was playing the lead at the uh Three Penny Opera, and she's incredible. Like her voice and her vocal prowess is just amazing. So you don't get as much of that on a poppy song like Change of Heart, but it's fantastic. And then let's close with uh, a great uh, hair metal song from the LA Guns. You like those LA Guns, Nub? I haven't spent a lot of time with LA yeah, Guns. <laughs> well, The Ballad of Jane is a yeah, wonderful cool. song from the 80s. Uh, love that hair metal era. So a uh, great one from from those LA guns nubs. What's in your head? Well, what's in my head is I, I actually want to see if it was, it's been in your head at all. I've given myself permission to have three listens because yeah. we're waiting until June of 2022 for the album release, but I've allowed myself to just simply have three times to listen to Haridan, which is the new song by porcupine tree. Have oh, you heard it yet? No. no. Okay. So I, I don't want to spoil the album by listening to it nonstop. And the album doesn't come out until June, but they have released this as the first single. And it is so just mind blowingly awesome to have oh, good. Country back. Good. So um, it's a good track. I love the track. I, I'm excited to hear what you think about it. Maybe next week for, for uh, what's in your head, you can tell us what you think, but yeah, okay. Har Haradon is the new song from Porcupine tree. It's been officially released and the album comes out next summer and it will follow with a tour and i just cannot wait one of my all-time favorite bands is back 
Second in my head is a cover of The Police's Synchronicity 2 by a band called No Motive, this sort of an emo band. There was a tribute to The Police done in the early 2000s, and their cover of Synchronicity 2 is just terrific. It, it capitalizes on all the elements of it, but in this hard rock way. So, so, so good. Check it out. Synchronicity 2 by No Motive. And third is a little ditty off Pretzel Logic by Steely Dan, and that is Berrytown. A song that maybe when I first heard it as a kid, I thought maybe it was about Barry Manilow. Not convinced that it is now, but I still love Berrytown by Steely Dan. So T, that is what is in my head. And what is in your head? And what will be in your head for a while, I think, is some of these things off Vitology. I, I was glad to, to talk about it with you, man. I know it's an album that you've always appreciated. And I'm just glad we got through a Pearl Jam conversation without you like breaking something or, you know. <laughs> Like, no man, I was way more bullish on the uh, on the yes. record and on the episode than you were. You know? Yes, you but, were. Uh, what a weird episode, huh? It's, it's almost like the song "Bugs" just uh, you know like seeped into the yeah. strangeness of the episode as a whole. But no man, great choice. It was fun. Well, let's get out our accordions here to end episode sixty-six. How about yeah, that? we'll pull like that, like old, uh, like old Al Yankovic used to do. Hey? <laughs> That's right, exactly, exactly. Well, thanks, T, and I look forward to resuming our activities for episode sixty-seven to see what you T have in store for us. And I do ask, as always, that everybody you know take care of yourselves and take care of each other, and we will see you once again next week with a new episode of Two Twins and an Album. Two Twins and an Album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.